podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box to this episode. Patreon is a monthly subscription and you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. I'm Rania Shatah and this is the Beirut Banyan. Hussein Ibish, Senior Resident Scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. I also write a weekly column for Bloomberg and a weekly column for The National. If you remember the Arab Spring protests in certain countries, not the ones we're seeing now, but in other countries, mm-hmm. uh, in Tunisia and Egypt, Syria, Bahrain, etc., in um, 2010 and, 20, uh, and 2011, you know, if you look back on it, you would say, well, you know, did anything fundamentally change? Well, in Tunisia, yes. And elsewhere, if they did change, for example, in Syria, it changed for the worse in the sense that there's been a great deal of damage without anything accomplished. And yes. Egypt appears to be, if anything, you know, more autocratic and repressive than it was before, etc. Now, that doesn't mean they weren't historic. That doesn't mean that they won't have long term implications of various kinds. And so mm-hmm. in this case, I think there, it's really interesting because if we, you know, you can't really throw them all in, into the same basket, even though there's a lot of interesting similarities between the Iraqi and the Lebanese situations, they are fundamentally different. In the case of Lebanon, I think it's clear that the economic and political structures in the country have not changed. They are fundamentally mm-hmm. unchanged. There is the, the nature of the government has changed now, but the basic equation on the side of power has not fundamentally altered. The way they do, who they are, the way they do business, the way they see the world has not changed. I would argue that on the side of demonstrators, and because of their efforts in terms of the public conversation in Lebanon and the national culture, something really fundamental has changed. Mm -hmm. And my view is that in in the Lebanese context, uh, this is not in Iraq, there's something else going on. But in the Mm -hmm. Lebanese context, what has what the the protests have revived uh, is an old idea of Lebanon as a modern nation state project, as a national project uh, that strives towards the creation of a unified identity will work towards eventually. So, you know, if you go back to the origins of the state, right, in in the late 30s and the 40s, you're talking about a set of leaders who understood that there were community and confessional and sectarian distinctions among the Lebanese. And that, you know, when you talked about a potential Republic of Lebanon, you were talking about an aspirational thing that not only didn't exist in theory, it didn't it didn't exist even kind of um, aspirationally. But what they thought was that if you created a Lebanese state that that constructed an equilibrium of these different constituencies that was functional. Mm-hmm. Eventually, the state could develop 
to create a national identity through a modern national project that transcended those differences and created a Lebanon e pluribus unam, one out of many, right, or out of many one. And yes. that idea, I think, was very present in Lebanese discourse and culture and whatnot in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And it died a death, we thought, during the Civil War, beginning in 1975, going through to 1990, and then in this highly contested, highly sectarian and confessional and communitarian system that has existed since Taif, you know, throughout the 90s and until now. You know, if you had said to people eight months ago, nine months ago, and any time before that, going back into the 70s, that the the uh, ideal of Lebanon as a modern national project that would transcend communal differences and create a a, uh, a modern national identity uh, was still there. I think people would would have been entitled to kind of snicker and dismiss it and whatnot. And you can't do that anymore because I yes. think what the protests did is demonstrate that that dormant ideal is not in fact dead, that that dormant ideal exists. And insofar as the ideal exists, the potential for it to eventually emerge also exists. And I would point to something really important. In the constitution, there are more than one provisions, all unenacted, that yes. point yes. to a, uh, uh, a non, non-communal, non-sectarian, genuinely democratic, uh, parliament, you know, a lower house that that is simply based on one person, one vote, mm-hmm. and then an upper house that continues to, uh, you know, express the national pact. Uh, there has never been a, an instance in recent decades in the post-Taif period where you could imagine how on earth pressures to implement those uh, provisions in the Constitution to, to, to create a bicameral legislature in which the lower house would be you know, non-sectarian, non, non-communitarian and democratic and more responsive to the public could possibly emerge. But now I think you can. You can imagine uh, that that becomes a rallying cry for protests that continue, even, even in a less dramatic way, but continue into the future. And that you can imagine it being picked up by some politicians in the country, and you can imagine it becoming part of a set of reform demands by international donors who want to help to do a short-term and long-term economic rescue. And I don't think it's unthinkable anymore. Is It's a long shot. It's difficult to imagine. It's not really on the front of anyone's agenda, et cetera. But it's there in the Constitution. The sentiment to demand it is there, and the leverage is there in terms of the political and economic crises that continue to roil the country. I really like the long view, and you eloquently just described both the structural problems Lebanon has been trying to overcome going back to the 30s and 40s, Mm. the previous attempts at reform that did not really muster much in the end. They kind of either inevitably uh, those efforts dwindled or they failed or sometimes they led to outright violence. And that this time around, there's a lining up of circumstances Mm. which are in fact unusual. And I think this kind of 
it, this kind of maybe goes directly to an article you released in Bloomberg Opinion. I like the title because that title, I think, is an existential title for Lebanon. Mm. And if you'll permit me, it's de- desperation might just drive Lebanon to reform. And I think that says it all, because the desperation this time is not just a sort of group of uh, secular-minded protesters demanding change. This is dramatic pain felt for maybe, maybe the first time in, in a generation. where you the have people, Absolutely. And it's, it's a genuine suffering that has made people rethink the country they live in. Yes. I, I get from what you're saying and from other people I've spoken to that this is both a blend of political uh, or demands for political change and Mm. also demands for economic dignity. Mm. But if you just sort of step back from the moment, do you see the economic uncertainty as as more than a driving force, but a necessity for political change? And and what I mean by that is... If, if you kind of alleviate the economic pain, whether it's through a potential IMF, uh, okay. IMF structure form, or even if it's sort of like a regional sort of lifeline that mm-hmm. we've seen in the past, yes. do you think that 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 is sort of necessary? The pain, not the pain, but let's say the the stagnation is a is a necessity for true political change. Yeah, I think political change in Lebanon is so difficult. To muster, mm-hmm. because the the see, let's step back for a second. The 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 reason the system in Lebanon, the political structure, which is partly legal and constitutional, and partly de facto and sort of customary, right? Customary post taif anyway, which is quite a mm-hmm. while, um, is so entrenched because. It's a delicate equilibrium of unstable elements. It's like a bunch of chemicals in a bomb factory that are (laughs) structured in a way that they're not mixing so they're not going to ignite. Okay, but there is this danger that if one item tipped over and started pouring into another item, it could become Uh combustible, right? And that, from an elite point of view, the whole name of the game has been to divvy up political power, regional authority, and patronage and economic clout and um, spoils, frankly, in a way that minimally keeps everybody happy so that in the end, nobody wants to ignite the thing, right? This unstable equilibrium of unstable elements or relatively stable equilibrium of unstable elements. So... Because of that, that's that, that's a book title. That's a book title right there for Lebanon, for modern Lebanon. <laughs> well, okay, someone else is going to have to write it, but uh, I, they're welcome to it. Uh, my point is this: they, they the the situation is so ossified and delicate, and there are so many really powerful disincentives that have to do both with people protecting their own narrow political and economic interests and protecting a system that they may in many cases genuinely believe is the only way of avoiding a calamity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. In terms of another conflict or a meltdown or a completely failed state or something like that, that they want it to continue, right? For but both yes. for for selfish and for non-selfish reasons, or not entirely selfish reasons, right? Now, yes. how do you how do you get around that? Uh, and I think the only answer can really be strong pressure from below, and we have it 
with the protests. They continue. They're not as dramatic and as powerful as they were, but they haven't ended either. And it mm-hmm. clearly there's no resolution to the output. The fact that you don't have a fifth of the population on the streets anymore doesn't mean that that fifth of the population thinks things are okay. It doesn't mean right. that they have withdrawn their no confidence vote. It doesn't mean that they're satisfied or even placated. It means they're exhausted. It means they're doing other things. But it doesn't mean things are okay in terms of the relationship between the power structure and the population. Plainly, they're not. And then, uh, on the other hand, you've got the situation economically and structurally for the country is sort of so bad that there's this outside pressure that can be brought to bear and should, and I hope will be brought to bear, that kind of doubles. So it comes from what amounts to the top down, because, you know, the top being as the international donor class, the power structure, whether it's multilateral institutions like the World Bank and the IMF, or key outside funders, the US, Europe, and the Gulf countries, to say to the Lebanese authorities, in this case, the government of Hassan Diab and its uh, free patriotic movement and Hezbollah backers, right? Or the the power elite in general, which has had little choice but to give this um, one color uh, government a chance, right? This this largely pro uh, Nasrallah uh, kind of coalition. That that creates a situation where there might be enough leverage to make them shift, right? And and I think there's a real possibility here. Uh, that the the threat of continued public disorder is so great and the need for a bailout is so great that real change has to happen. And it may be modest to begin with, right? But as long as it's structural, you, you once change, the, the reason nothing has changed at all is that structural change opens Pandora's box. Once you get some structural change, it becomes like, all right, why can't you do more? And why would you say, right, we'll do this structural change, but not that structural change? And it becomes very obvious what kind of power structure is being challenged. It's much easier to say, look, we can't change anything for fear of the consequences. That's been Mm -hmm. the position since 1990, in effect. Right. Basically, that's been the position since 1990. And you have these groups, the two, especially the two dominating the current government, which are the anti-change coalition, Hezbollah and its allies, Amal and the others who don't want any change because they don't want anyone to question and start to undermine the independent military and therefore the independent foreign and uh, defense policy of Hezbollah and the fact that they have a state within a state. And the uh, sort of very right-wing chauvinistic Maronites in the FMP, uh, FPM, excuse me, who who want to uh, maintain all the kind of uh, gerrymandering in the national pact and in the structure of parliament, etc., uh, in favor of uh, parts of their community. And so you've got this anti-change coalition, which comes from those who don't want informal change and those who don't want formal change and don't want any change, the don't touch it constituency. And it's very interesting that the government now represents only the don't touch anything constituency. And my view view is that this government has been put forward in order to fail, right? Because I don't think Hezbollah really expects the Diab government to succeed. 
right? Well, I think their plan is that when it finally does collapse, they will come forward and say, in the spirit of national reconciliation and comedy and harmony, we will reluctantly accept the return of Saad Hariri and the way and go back yeah. to the way things were before October, before the protests, uh, or somebody like that, and basically get what they wanted, which is to have a, a much more broadly based coalition within the elite from which they can then withdraw from the limelight and go back to doing everything they did, which is secure their their fundamental interests behind the scenes of trying to pretend that they weren't the dominant power broker. I think what in, in fact uh, is the problem for them is that first of all, they're exposed. Right? They're exposed by the fact that the government is now entirely them and, and their ownest allies. Right. And number two, they're exposed by the fact that when they panicked over the strength of the protests, the goons in the street who made it clear that there were people willing to indulge in violence to keep the system going, there were mainly uh, Hezbollah and Amal. In other words, that it became obvious that if push came to shove, they would hurt people and probably kill people to keep the, you know, to keep change from happening. So they're doubly exposed. And then the other problem is, that's at the bottom rung, switch back to the top, the problem for them is that if the whole national economy goes down, their fortunes, literally and figuratively, their finances, their holdings, their investments, and their ability to conduct business uh, according to their own interests also collapses. They are not outside of Lebanon. They are not in a, a, a bubble floating in space. They are not an island in the South Pacific. They are in Lebanon, and they need the Lebanese economy to be functional and whatnot. So there's a lot of leverage on them in both ways, both in terms of, look, you know, you're busted. The whole line about you're just a resistance movement and you're really basically revolutionary and your guns are only for dealing with the Israelis and all that, that's busted. And, the, you know, when, when the economy is this bad and the crisis is this bad, you will suffer as much as anybody else. And so I think there's a tremendous pressure on that group that is used to being, feeling and acting as if they weren't pressured. And in addition, the same thing, of course, applies to the, all the rest of the, of the elite, all of whom are part of Lebanon, just as much, if not more so, because a lot of them, I mean, at least Hezbollah can get some money from the IRGC and from Iran and whatnot, which some people, you know, some other factions lack. And so right. everyone is implicated. So the pressure on everybody at this point to listen very carefully to what the IMF and the World Bank have to say, take very seriously what David Schenker and the rest of the Americans have to say, and to listen very carefully to what the EU has to say, uh, and of course, to start to be responsive to the Gulf countries uh, is very, very important. Remittances from the Gulf countries are way down. And I think it's yeah. really interesting that Hassan Diab, once he became prime minister, said, I'm going to the Gulf right away. And the thing is, none of the Gulf countries are willing to receive him, except Qatar, which now has to be very careful about maintaining good relations with Iran, uh, because they're very dependent on the Iranians, not just for the natural gas field, but also for overflight rights and also many other subtle things, plus it's very likely that the Reaper drones that killed um, Qasem Soleimani and Al-Muhandas yes. were launched from <laughs> Al-Udaid, and they need to make it very clear 
to the Iranians that 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 they were not involved in that, even though it came from their country, but that they were not involved. So they have to be very careful to maintain good relations with Iran. Nobody else will receive this man. So yeah. you know the pressure yeah, is very yeah. great. That's my point. The pressure is very great. You've defined the moment, I think, in terms of that there's a a combination of sorts of yes. genuine domestic top down uh, and bottom up. Can I put it that exactly? Way? Right. Top down and bottom up. And both may be at the same level. Yeah. So in other words, five, five months or four and a half, five months into these demonstrations. Right. And you said it. You said it well. Even if they've gone home, they're still not content. No, no, no. The home. I mean, the reduction in the size of these things does not mean everything's OK. And I think the exactly. elite knows that. The, the other side, which is, I think, the other side of the coin, you're saying that or you're suggesting that there's enough international reluctance to yeah. to uh, fund the old ways of Lebanon in, the, in that in that sort of in that field. And I know it's still fairly young. I know. I mean, four and a half, five months is still kind of the beginning. But yes, do, you, do you sense that a a tipping point has been reached? In, in other words, where that the regime is inevitably forced no. to make concessions. No. Okay. No, I don't think it's inevitable. No, not at all. I think okay. there are a couple of different ways out, right? Uh, one of them is if the elite comes back together to preserve their own bacon uh, to and gives the, the, the public enough relief from the political pressure and and curbs the Ponzi scheme and unleashes sufficient money um, to the middle class and the the uh, lower middle class to to satisfy people that mm -hmm. something is being done to address their quality of life and they come together to preserve and and make certain a set of concessions that are um, limited and tactical but not strategic. Mm -hmm. That it's put, that potentially people between that and being exhausted and lacking uh, a consensus among themselves about what they want and lacking a uh, strong political leadership, all of which is there among the protesters, that, that that could be one way that they try to get out of it. But that would require the elite to come together, which they haven't done. But it is right. possible. The other thing that could happen uh, – it, on the other side, so that's dealing with the bottom-up part. From the top-down side, if they can get the IMF and the World Bank to accept terms that are strictly uh, economic and make those somehow figure out a way to make those economic changes palatable to the country mm -hmm. as a whole, because they're going to involve austerity and, and pain and stuff like that, but it is not impossible, which is very hard. And can, can convince the West and the Gulf countries to look at the Lebanese state in a certain way, which I'll describe in a minute. They could also find at least a temporary lifeline in that without making the kind of far-reaching structural changes that I'm talking about, right? They could make a lot of cosmetic changes that don't actually change the nature of the country or that are just, let's, as I say, st tactical rather than structural changes. And here's what I mean. I mean that, for example, if they were willing to kind of pretend to implement some sort of reforms regarding Hezbollah's domination of the state or his and, and Hezbollah were to kind of 
um, you know, withdraw its presence from Syria a bit and ease its role regionally with Iran and emphasize its Lebanese activities rather than its regional activities and kind of make a show of trying to implement, pretending to implement the dissociation policy that the government adopted, uh, you know, about 10 years ago. The Ba'abda Declaration, 2012, I believe. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, right. So it's right. So it's about 10 years ago, uh, yeah. almost. Uh, so, right. So then the, the, that idea that, you know, you Lebanese government and p- all parts of it, which implies Hezbollah, shouldn't be engaged in any in, in, in interference in any Arab anything, which would mean Hezbollah should not be there in Syria, in Iraq, in, 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 in Yemen, in Bahrain, wherever the hell it is in Morocco, <laughs> wherever they've shown up, uh, oddly enough, uh, in yeah. recent years, and basically, you know, be, be a Lebanese thing rather than a part of an Iranian regional network. But they, could, they could pretend to do that for a while. And, and my point is this, the, here's the argument that would be used. And it's not an irrational argument. The reason this is possible is that it's by no means an irrational argument. And, and there's a lot of truth to it. So it's a matter of balance. balance. What could be said to the West and the Gulf is, look, you know, you, you don't want to fund the Lebanese state because you see how Hezbollah uses it to um, carry out its agenda. Fine, we get that. But you know what? There is no alternative to Hezbollah other than the Lebanese state. And this is true, by the way. Mm-hmm. So you, if you abandon the Lebanese state because you don't like how you know, the influence Hezbollah has in it, you are then ensuring the Lebanese state is wholly dominated by Hezbollah, rather than have any, like the LAF, large parts of which are not dominated by Hezbollah, or the parts of the security service which are not, other parts of the state which are not. And you're just going to ensure that Hezbollah and its allies in the FPM and Amal and whoever else is, it completely dominates the state, and that would be worse. And this is actually true. Okay, so it becomes a very delicate balancing act for uh, the West and the Gulf and others and even the IMF and the World Bank, if they're interested in this question, uh, for how to support the state in ways that does not unduly reward and buttress Hezbollah, but strengthens the state as a counterweight, the tightrope that the international community needs to walk. Now, you've actually opened the door to another subject which I really wanted to get into, and that's the question of Lebanon's sovereignty in this yeah. wider story. Mm. And I, uh, I attended a panel discussion in New York, mm. and the question surrounded the, the best route to ensuring a better economic future for Lebanon. And yeah. I, I posited the question of whether or not the the issue of Hezbollah and what Hezbollah represents not not that group in particular but a group like that yeah. that can yeah. that can dictate things that a state usually dictates or yes. for that matter is a is a sort of a must before before mm-hmm. ensuring long term stability I, right. I and I got the sense that that in the Lebanese context and maybe I maybe you share this view I'd like to get your opinion that there's a reluctance a sincere reluctance to to kind of enter that conversation. And I think it's probably a combination of outright fear and maybe that they sense it's a losing battle. And I, I don't necessarily agree with this position, but that the the best uh, way to to kind of confront Hezbollah today 
is to kind of leave it out of the equation and mm-hmm. touch on the economics and make sure that uh, they're they're based signing up to that kind of long term uh, struggle. And I actually I personally think that the opposite is true that yeah. a yeah. that the geopolitical considerations are still paramount to the yeah. story. Yeah. Can I ask you when you say there's just one one thing I need to clarify? Sure. You say sure. reluctance. The reluctance mm-hmm. on whose part to confront that question, on the part of the international community, the donors, or Lebanese? I think my sense is that the, from what I saw as well on the streets during these protests and among people that identify mm-hmm. with that movement, ah. that, they are, that, they are, that they are cautiously leaving the yes. Hezbollah story out of the equation. All right. And, and kind of stepping behind that Killon Yani Killon slogan. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but in other words, the the Hezbollah's what you're describing the yeah. regional security mm. uh, structure of that group is kind of a too big to deal with right now. Right. So okay. So I think yes, it is the unspoken uh, element because uh-huh. when you want to address economic and political concerns, if you if you bring up the question of Hezbollah's autonomous power. Yes. You raise a whole bunch of issues that appear to be extraneous to yes. those complaints. And right. you raise the question of what the relationship, what the nature of the Lebanese state is, what the what the relationship of Lebanon to the rest of the Middle East is, mm-hmm. what the role of Iran and Syria and these outside countries, but that are very close to Lebanon might be. And you get into a debate that splits the Lebanese working and middle class ideologically. And that's why people don't want to get into it because all of a sudden you start to lose the leftists. You start to lose some of the Islamists. You lose a lot of the Shiites. You lose some of the Greek Orthodox. You lose uh, Arab nationalists, and and you can't lose half of Lebanon if you wanted. So so that's a problem. However, I think you're right. I think that ultimately, as long as you have a a group of political parties uh, and, you know, propped up by these militias that they've created, uh, and in particular it's Hezbollah, that has this kind of that has usurped this degree and scope and part of state power so thoroughly, you can't have real thoroughgoing reform without it. So in other words, here's here's what it comes down to. I talked about the don't do anything coalition that the Diab government has boiled down to its essence, right? Mm -hmm. And what what, what you're describing is a moment where you start talking about doing something about at least half of the don't do anything part. And then the other half would be, what about democracy? What about uncommunalizing the political structure? What about defanging the national pact and de-gerrymandering parliament and creating something that's a lot more responsive to people that empowers votes, that starts treating citizens on a one person, one vote basis with equity and not based on their participation in some kind of a big uh, group of um, a big minority group or a big uh, communal group or something like that. So at that point, again, 
you've started to alienate people who, who feel that, well, they have an economic stake in reform and they don't really like the elite and all that, but they, they, they like the militia power on the side of, the, uh, of their community, or they like the privilege that they get from the way things have been gerrymandered and rigged on, on, you know, that has come to advantage them disproportionately, or something like that. And yeah. the informal, the formal and informal inequities of the state, right? Uh, if yes. I may put it that way, which which uh, you know advantages the 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 least enfranchised and the most enfranchised in different ways at the same time, right? And and so at that point, uh, you've really gotten into the fact that the system just doesn't work for people. And I think the only way to get around it is to say, look, listen, we have to deal with these questions, but we have a set of agreements that we can implement, right? Nobody's talking about imposing anything on anybody else. Everybody signed Taif. Let's implement what was agreed on in Taif. The Constitution provides for creating a bicameral parliament. Let's do it. Let's do it not because we want to weaken any constituency. We don't want to take anybody's uh, authority away from them. We don't want to dominate anyone. That's not the point. The point is we want to turn our back on the past because what the past has meant is two things, civil war and kleptocracy. It means mm -hmm. that we shoot each other or the people who run the show steal everything from the rest of us. And what we need to do is stop at the moment the stealing without going back to the shooting. And the way to do it is to gradually transform the system. The Lebanese people owe nothing to the Iranian revolution. They owe, they owe a lot to the Shiite community, right? Mm. They owe a lot of mm. respect to the Shiite community. The Shiite community deserves, by virtue of its existence, a great deal of power and influence because it's very big. And it deserves respect of that, but not the government of Iran, not the Quds force, right? Yes, the Lebanese, yes. the Lebanese uh, people have no business interfering in the, the Syrian civil war. And the Syrian government has no business interfering in Lebanese affairs either. And the, the parts of the Maronite community that like the privileges that they've inherited from an ossified system that's based on agreements made in the 40s, rooted in censuses from the 20s, are just going to have to accept that they can't live a reasonable life either economically you, or politically, without letting go of it. I mean, I think yeah, this is yeah. something that has to be gradually, This is there has to be a gradual process of making that point to people, that everyone has to give things up. I mean, I think you can trace the destabilization of yeah. Lebanon to the way in which Lebanon was sucked into the battle between uh, Arab conservatives and nationalists on the one hand, and sort of revolutionary Arab nationalists on the other hand, in the 50s and Nasserites, right, uh, versus the kind of traditionalists, you know, and then was sucked into the Israeli-Palestinian thing, and now it's yeah. been sucked into the uh, Arab-Iranian thing. And that's the unfortunate pattern that all generations are familiar with, right. and I like I, I like that you you pointed back to the Baabda Declaration. Yes. And my, my memory of that moment in Lebanese history, the genuine attempt back then, and sure. which you described, which is, which was sincere in some, in some quarters and insincere in others. Yes. But, but that, that moment, not that long ago, where Lebanon was faced with a crisis next door in Syria, and one party 
would eventually become the reason that regime survived. Uh, yeah. I mean, that they were instrumental in at no, least. No, no, they were key. Without yeah. them, it, it might not have happened. Is, is there any room beyond economic assistance and beyond that international component when it comes mm. to money? Is there any anything that could happen in terms of political change where you'd see perhaps, perhaps yes. a, a yes. regional understanding or for, for that matter, an international uh, arrangement where Lebanon so, is is lo- at least protected mm-hmm. somehow from those so there battles? there are two ways. Yes, there are two ways it can happen, mm-hmm. for, which is one is, again, from the bottom and the top, and preferably it would be both, um, not necessarily simultaneously, but in some sort of harmony and with some degree of uh, chronological proximity so that it would actually be reinforcing rather than pointless. From the bottom up, uh, it would be uh, real pressure from uh, all the Lebanese constituencies, including the Shia and Maronite communities, to say that, look, this is not in our interests as a country, as a community, as a people. We understand why you organizationally feel drawn to satisfy the imperatives of the IRGC Quds Force. We understand also why you think it's necessary for you to um, try to maintain this regime in Damascus in power. It's sort of this, you think this is existential, but you know what? It's not. What's existential is your... Uh, position in your country and within your community. And, uh, you know, this is this is the kind of thing that can wreck that. And, and so I think that in a certain at a certain point, it becomes very hard to continue those policies if they are widely rejected, including by lots of Shiites in Lebanon and lots of, and lots of Maronites and lots of others. Right. Yes. And I think you can see this. The, the, I think you can see the uh, elements of that in the protest movement, because the protest movement was not, uh, you know, it, it did not fail to include lots of Lebanese Shiites. Right? There were plenty of them involved. I mean, it's, this is a, con- a constituency that was heavily engaged in the protests, right? And yes. uh, they are not suffering less economically, and they are not also less interested in Lebanon's future. They are in no, no way different from the rest of the country, frankly. Uh, there is this very strong kind of... Um, political domination by a couple of parties, Hezbollah and Amal, etc. But it's hardly universal. It's not entirely hegemonic. And, and there is a sense that there are other issues. There is the issue of the plutocrats and the Zaim and the bosses and all of that, right? So that, that, you know, even, in other words, even the people who protect you can become exploiter, can be seen, recast very easily as exploiters and thieves, and which they are, all right? And then, uh, and that goes for every single constituency. And then in addition to that, it's like, why are my cousins dying for, uh, you know, al-Qaim? Really, where is that again? And what's what's this town in you know near the Iraqi border? What are you guys talking about, right? I mean, this is not you know. You told us this was about the Israeli occupation, and now all of a sudden we're in Iraq, right? <laughs> what is this? Uh, and and I think there's there's a it's a bit of a stretch, and that can be 
You know, the regional role of Hezbollah is a lot harder to explain when it comes to expeditionary activity outside of the borders of Lebanon than it is when it comes to Shabbat farms or something, as, as cooked up an excuse as that no doubt is. Um, so another, it, it, another it's saleable. So the the economics really is the is the only way forward. I in think other words, domestically it's key. And then yeah, I was yes. going to say internationally. So from the from the top down, yeah, I think the economics is the key to the political. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. from the top down, it, it is definitely possible in the longer run for an understanding between Iran and uh, Arab countries. That yes. begins with something where they agree more than they disagree, like maritime security in the Gulf, for example, or right. some kind of an agreement on Yemen, which the Iranians don't care that much about, to eventually end up in an understanding of what amount to spheres of influence, right? And an understanding that addresses the role and frankly ends the role of these uh, pro-Iranian non-state militias like the uh, the Badr Corps and all these different uh, popular mobilization front units in Iraq, Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, the Houthis as a state within a state in Yemen, and their integration into the state in Yemen, etc. This is something that if if Iran were not pursuing this as a uh, national security agenda and as an instrument of foreign policy, uh, it wouldn't be the raison d'etre of Hezbollah. It's the raison d'etre of Hezbollah because it's the raison d'etre of the IRGC Quds Force and and because it's Iran's foreign policy. It's not anything endemic and indigenous to Hezbollah. If if the IRGC QF told them that it would be much better for them to pull their people back into Lebanon and throw themselves into representing the Shiite community in Lebanon and integrate themselves into the Lebanese armed forces on a reasonable basis and end their independent policies and become, you know, part of a functional state, they would do it. I think there's no doubt they would do it. What you're describing right now seems so uh, ideal and yet impossible to imagine. No, it's not. It's really not that hard to imagine it. Can I can I well, ask you just in, just in terms of the ingredients that are necessary for Iran to to kind of persuade Hezbollah to focus more on Lebanese affairs than Iran's security? Yeah, I don't what think else? they have to persuade them. I think they have to tell them. Uh, I think Hezbollah would be perfectly happy not to be traipsing around the Middle East doing mm-hmm. the uh, IRGCQF bidding. I mean, I think it's something they're willing to do ideologically and structurally. They don't. Uh, they probably don't put up much of a fight when they're asked to do it. I think it comes naturally to them. But I don't think it's their idea. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think it's their priority necessarily as an organization. I think it's something they're willing to do. But I think if they were, if they were told to do it, they would. Now, why would they ever be told to do it? Well, yeah. because yeah. ultimately, no, that's, that's, that's a good question, and, and I want to answer it. Ultimately, there's got to be an understanding and accommodation between Iran and Gulf Arab countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE, etc. Uh, and it's because they both live there, and neither side wants a war, right? But that's very obvious at this point, and neither side is going away. So they're going to have to come to terms at some point. And... For a long time, the Arab side, uh, Saudi and UAE side, didn't want to really engage in direct um, 
negotiations with Iran because they thought what it would amount to is having them sign off on Iran's regional gains in Syria and Lebanon and Iraq and uh, Yemen, etc. And it mm -hmm. would just be basically be that. And they weren't willing to do it. And uh, I think that similarly, Iran right now, there are a lot of people in Iran that don't want to engage in a conversation with, it's now flipped. I think that there are more Iranians who are, you know, wary yeah. about the negotiations because they feel very much under the gun because of the Lebanese protests and the Iraqi protests and the protests inside Iran and the way in which things have gone very badly for Iran in northern Syria between Russia and Turkey and uh, Assad, and that they're really losing their grip on these rallies. They're really losing their grip on parts of Syria they thought were secured. Uh, and uh, the Americans saying they'll leave and not leaving and all this stuff. So, I mean, I really think that right now the, the, the bigger uh, obstacles come from the Iranian side because they feel weakened. So basically the problem with negotiations has been that at any given point, both sides feel the other side is is unnaturally strong, but they don't feel there's no need for a negotiation. They just want to negotiate under different circumstances. Well, at some point, history suggests at some point, both sides will feel the need to negotiate is greater than any concern that they are unnaturally, historically, and artificially disadvantaged, right? In other words, that, that, that the situation is kind of okay, it's tolerable, that they can, yes. they can negotiate from enough strength, but they have to address their weaknesses in some kind of an agreement, but they do have some bargaining chips, and they're not in free fall uh, that, that they will come to an agreement. At some point when that, that is going to happen, one of the things that eventually is going to get on the table is the role of these pro-Iranian militias yes. that, that, are, that are cancers on Arab countries like Iraq and Syria and Lebanon. Uh, cancers in the sense that they kill the body, right? The body can't function properly, the body of state, because you have these autonomous rogue cells, right? Uh, and I think they're literally cancerous. It doesn't mean these parties have to go away. It just means they have to give back to the state some of the aspects of state functions that they've taken over, on, especially on defense and foreign policy. And once you have an understanding about spheres of influence and terms, you can do that. And I, so I do think that will eventually happen. And I think the Lebanese including Hezbollah, would be well advised to try to get their own house in order before it's imposed on them entirely from the outside, because at some point it will be. I hope that what we're seeing now on the streets in Beirut and throughout Lebanon, I hope that this moment in history translates into that kind of achievement Me too. where the Lebanese finally are able to see eye to eye and, and realize that they have within themselves to either to do two things, to shield Lebanon and to perhaps find a way forward out of this mess that Lebanon has known for too long. I really hope that it you works. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you something. They don't have to go from zero to 60 in 12 seconds, right? No one expects Hezbollah to disarm and, and integrate into the Lebanese army in the next year. Okay, that's yeah. not what people are asking for, right? What, what would yeah. be enough would be to begin to implement Babda to begin to implement the disengagement pro, uh, you know, uh, program to begin to implement those parts of the Constitution. I think it's Article 26 and some of the others that provide for more democratic means of, of representation. 
and for the kleptocracy and the Ponzi scheme and the looting of the of the national wealth by this um, this uh, you know uh, trans communal elite um, to to be reined in. And if you started doing that, you would start to create a virtuous circle where you would create a very different set of reward expectations and a different set of of um, uh, incentives, right, of yes. positive yes. incentives for, for yes. people at the top and the bottom. And, you know, that what we what we have now is all the reward structures are 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 are, are um, basically um, stacked in the worst place. Right. They're stacked yeah. in the system as it has existed post-Civil War and post-Taif and as sectarian, as antagonistic and as dysfunctional as possible. And if you started to move between protest pressure and international economic rescue pressure on shifting some of those reward systems and reward structures onto something a lot more positive, you could create a much more virtuous cycle. It's happened before in other countries. Other countries have been in an utter mess. Look at, you know, Argentina and Chile and Brazil, and they've been disasters. And and with international support and regional support, they've pulled themselves out of it. A lot of Central America also has been yes. in much worse shape than it is now. Parts of Africa. Okay? So this is not hopeless. You just need to start a virtuous circle rather than a vicious circle. And all we've had since 1975 are vicious circles. Hussein, I hope the next time we speak, I can gauge your mind on the Palestinian cause. Anything. And and last time we met was about two decades ago. Oh. Uh, I, I I know you won't remember this. I was a student, uh, and this was you were at the American Arab Anti-Discriminatory Committee. The yeah, AAPC. Well, this is some right. some. I mean, this is I think almost two two decades ago. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it would have been two decades ago. Yeah. Yeah. So the next time we speak, we can talk about that issue, and, and I know sure. that's a different, that's a different, but also overlapping well, story that we I, all I'd sort of talk to you know. about it because the Palestine issue is one that I don't let go of, and I continue yes. to work on it in spite of the fact that I focus a lot of my efforts now on the Gulf. I still dive into the Lebanese issue because I can't help it, and the Palestinian <laughs> issue because I think it's really important. So and you are you are also a fellow Ras Beiruti from Karakol <laughs> Bish. There we go. We're neighbors. We are neighbors in Manara. The ideal thing would be to meet there. So let's do that. That that would be fantastic. Hussein, thank you for your time today. Excellent. Let's do it again. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time. I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan.